Hey folks, Micah here. We're about to get started, but before we do, I just want to remind you that you can always get show notes for this and every other episode at christiantranshumanistpodcast.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for email updates so we can let you know when new shows are released, when new things happen in the Christian transhumanist community, and most importantly, so that we can connect you with other people just like you, exploring questions just like this. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Well, I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Robert Walden Kurtz, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor and adjunct professor of philosophy at Pacific Union College. He's taught ethics, theology, mathematics, served in law enforcement for 15 years, is an EMT, firefighter, chaplain, dog trainer, poet, tenor, student of jiu-jitsu, and is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in psychology with a specialization in consciousness, spirituality, and integrative health. So thanks, Robert, for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Micah. I, I love um, I love some of your uh, activities and all that. That to me is you know it, it kind of goes back to the idea of the the Renaissance person, um, and and I love it in the context of transhumanism, um, especially. So that that kind of uh, connects to where I actually met you at, which was back in 2014 at a religion and transhumanism conference um, out in uh, near Silicon Valley. And you were talking about um, Adventism and transhumanism. So I think for me and for a lot of people, I think um, Adventism, we don't really know a lot about it. So what is it and what's it, what's it really about? Well, Seventh-day Adventism is the largest religion that came from the Great Awakening in the middle 19th century. Um, William Miller became convinced that uh, his interpretation of uh, Bible prophecy uh, indicated to him that uh, originally he thought in 1843 that Jesus was going to return uh, visibly and literally. Um, he revised his calculations such that um, the date that was set, that was settled on was October 22, 1844, and there were there were many people in this Advent movement from uh, across Christianity, not just in North America, but I think uh, primarily in North America, and they were very convinced, so convinced that many people sold all of their possessions, hmm. sold their property gave up their jobs and homes, and for, uh, for the time leading up to what, what they thought were their last hours on earth, they, they preached widely, they held meetings, revivals, camp meetings, and I think that they created quite a stir in their various congregations. Um, it, it was an eclectic group um, from, from many denominations, um, I, I think that um, they were primarily uh, younger people that were um, that were, I think, troubling to to their clergy and to their <laughs> congregations. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I think there was no intention to to create a denomination to to create a separate church. That they didn't think they were going to be around for that purpose. Mm -hmm. um, as you can see, they they were mistaken. <laughs> They, uh, they, in the wake of being sorely disappointed and, and left with 
what looked like an uncertain future, having having put all of their stock in in Jesus coming back, they um, many of them drifted off and lost their faith um, entirely. Uh, many, I think, settled down and rejoined their uh, the denominations uh, of their earlier faith, and some though were disappointed um, with what they thought was a, a complacency for um, for Jesus' teachings, um, for er- earnestly trying to apply the, um, the teachings of Scripture to their lives. Mm. And there was uh, an early reinterpretation of the the prophecies that uh, that had led them to to uh, conclude that Jesus was literally returning, to uh, interpreting the, the the time prophecies as having been correctly calculated, but uh, reimagining the event that was to occur, hmm. and they became convinced that the event that occurred was a change in the the kind of ministry that Jesus was uh, was serving in, in heaven, um, leading up to the time of his return. Hmm. Uh, they, they interpreted the sanctuary service of, of ancient Israel as being a type of an antitypical heavenly sanctuary and an elaborate, um, soteriology developed in which during that uh, during that disappointment time, instead of Jesus coming back, literally and taking people to heaven, it, it was it was actually a, a, a an antitypical fulfillment of um, the 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 high priest in ancient uh, Israel sanctuary worship service moving into the most holy place. Hmm. Um, and and so they reinterpreted as a, uh, a soteriological um, event, and then renewed their their eagerness for Jesus to literally, um, physically, and universally return. Um, the shift was was taken from this emergent or or urgent sense of Jesus' return to an emphasis on an imminence of his return. That seems uh, so. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, moving pieces there, and and uh, it brings to mind all kinds of interesting things. You know, um, in in 2011, um, Harold Camping was predicting the end of the world, and um, and y- you know, there's there's always the question of what happens after the those predictions don't seem to come true, and. Um, so that that's that's one interesting take on it that it's it's essentially a change in God's kind of cosmic clock, perhaps. Indeed, and I I have been fascinated and and as as you heard in our discussions back in 2014 at the uh, at the uh, the conference that you and I both attended, uh, I'm fascinated by what appear to me some parallels in. In some of the uh, the eagerness um, between Seventh Day Adventists in the middle 19th century and and today some of today's mm. very evangelical transhumanists. Mm-hmm. 
there's a, a sense that um, we can we can actually achieve escape velocity, and I see in some of the blogs and some of the uh, the, the email services that that report daily the, the progress in, in hopeful transhumanist uh, activity. You see the uh, you see the uh, the shift in uh, well, I think I think some of the people that that, that are alive today. Uh, may may end up living for many many centuries, right. uh, and, and then other times we see things like you know as late as early as the the late twenty uh, twenties uh, that right. we're going to reach escape velocity, and I I am fascinated to see the uh, the excitement and the hope um, that that our transhumanists are are. Um, are placing and it just mm-hmm. it just reminds me of the way yeah. that I imagine early Seventh Day Adventists. Now, it, it could be that you and I will be very very old men, and uh, some of the technologies uh, will appear more remote instead of uh, mm-hmm. you know we, we may be hoping for our grandchildren, but th- that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. The, the import the important thing in in the parallel is. This human dynamic of yeah. uh, of of hoping to to cheat death. Yeah, and there there's something um, there's something about and, and I don't know if you have a, a perspective about it, but um, yeah, you, you've seen it that it's it's uh, present now, but it's also it seems that in the 1800s there was a lot of this, especially you know you see the the um, uh, birth of Mormonism, you see. Um, the uh, in Islam you have some offshoots the uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslims the the um, Baha'is that come out of that all people who are kind of looking for this imminent um, change or imminent pivot um, indeed in in fact I had uh, I had a representative of the Baha'i faith just uh, just mm-hmm. a month or so ago that that was in my uh, comparative world religions class as a, as a guest lecturer and he started out by by telling our class that um, that the time frame that seventh-day Adventists embraced uh, or, or proto Adventists embraced in in the 1840s actually um, the Baha'is actually agree with the with the date and huh. they 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 have a different take on what actually occurred yeah. There in October of 1844, and that was that uh, that uh, the Messiah did uh, return, and the and and their faith was was started the uh, yeah the Bob yeah that yeah that's so so interesting it's it's interesting these convergences of different groups around the world who are looking for um, similar sorts of of culmination, and I don't know. Do you have an opinion on what's like some of the soci- sociological factors that were driving that, or uh, is it just kind of a mysterious <laughs> thing? Well, I think that I think that to the degree that that world culture is is connected and people's conversation is is linked, um, certainly more today and more immediate today. Uh, I would say in the middle. Uh, 19th century, there was um, there there was uh, a, 
a new sense of connectedness, I think, that uh, communications um, had experienced and, and w- w- communications worldwide were experiencing uh, some breakthroughs in connectedness in, in the world. And it allows people to to know in uh, with less lag mm-hmm. what's going on everywhere in the world. Today, it's, it's, it's come to, to a degree that I don't think anybody could have imagined at any other time in, in our species uh, history where, where today we know uh, some some neighborhood crime in India, you know, and we're and mm-hmm. we, we sort of share the angst with people everywhere in the planet when when there's a house fire in 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 another continent. Um, even when I was a, a child, when I watched the news growing up in Sacramento, had there been a house fire on the East Coast, I, I doubt that we'd have we'd have known anything about that. The only news that we really concerned ourselves with outside of our immediate region would would have been uh, news that had national implications. Yeah. Um, so that I, I think yeah I think that there's we establish cycles of optimism and pessimism. You know whether they're political or um, or uh, just sort of a a worldwide groupthink, yeah. Um, but we we also find that um, in cycles people become hopeful about certain certain aspects of of life or of progress or of uh, government, and and then they lose hope and and look elsewhere. And I think the more we link our conversation, the more these cycles uh, can can be. Uh, involving yeah. thousands or even millions of people. Yeah, that that makes sense with uh, with intensification of communication. Then that we would start to see a lot of these um, these kind of optimistic or or um, eager or urgent um, ideas kind of reach uh, reaching new heights in a sense. Um, Kind of to go along with the <laughs> the amount of communication that we're all engaging in. Indeed, and and I think when when we have um, when we have uh, concentrations of of uh, of hopeful progress, um, we we've really since the industrial revolution we've we've seen uh, I think a, not necessarily a steady increase, but sort of a, a punctuated. Um, stop and start increase in in waves um, today though uh, I I don't think anybody could keep up with mm-hmm. with even uh, a fraction of of the disciplines that are experiencing progress at yeah. staggering rates and and that that really might have presented itself to the psyche of people at in, in uh, different eras since humanity has uh, leveraged technology, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that it it's accompanied not just with hope but with fear. Mm-hmm. It is frightening. It, people are worried about whether or not emerging technologies will allow them to to still experience life the way that they do, whether their jobs or their their resources, their communities, their families will will be. Um, changed in ways that make their lives unrecognizable is is frightening and um yeah. they look look for for hope in in all all kinds of places but yeah. i i think that um 
I think that it's interesting also, I, I look at um, the remnants of, of previous cycles um, still um, impacting humanity, and, and, and you have people like um, in groups that came out of the middle uh, 19th century when, when all of this um, reimagined religious uh, fervor um, left us with with various interpretations of, of that those predictions and that energy and and then to, to overlay on top of that the uh, today's movements such as transhumanism um, I I think that that what we're talking about with transhumanism though while there's parallels it's it's not identical we have things that are that are concrete, that are that are visible, um, that are moving uh, verifiably, mm-hmm. um, and and it's not just a social phenomenon. There's there's technology behind mm-hmm. behind this, and and I think that these technologies are are going to progress in spite of people's um, uh, religious um, or or social uh, hopes. Um, and in spite of people's ethical misgivings, mm-hmm. um, people's dystopic misgivings, um, it, it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, yeah. There, there is. Yeah, that the, that's right. There's a, a social um, aspect that has always always been going on uh, to some degree, and and now we see as well. This is being paired with genuinely new uh, things. That are happening in the world that are really kind of changing the dynamics of of what's possible, what might be emerging. Indeed, and I think that some some persistent um, religious uh, uh, worldviews are going to be confronted with some changes that um, that aren't just more of the same. That are that are truly <laughs> truly yeah. qual- qualitative uh, revolutionary changes. And and I think that that we're experiencing that anyway. We we we're looking forward to radical life extension, but um, I, I think we're actually already benefiting from hmm. from amazing life extension. Yeah. Um, it, it isn't like it was. Um, we we have we've had to reimagine a number of things. We're having we're having great uh, economic uh, uh, challenges that. That nobody can deny, um, as people outlive their retirement, um, as we see that systems that were put in place that um, should everything have remained the same mm-hmm. would have been probably adequate for a long, long time. We we have people expecting that they will retire in their uh, in their sixties, in their early sixties. When they still are just as capable of of uh, making a contribution and uh, and uh, earning earning uh, a living, it, it, there's a sense yeah. of you know my parents and my grandparents were able to retire and live out the rest of their days on their their investments. Um, I I went to um, the. Uh, Singularity Summit in hmm. 2011 in New York City, and 
uh, had only recently uh, run across some of Kurzweil's material hmm. and had seen the uh, Transcendent Man uh, video. Yeah. And I had to see more of that. I, I had to hear <laughs> when I heard that they were going to gather this this dream team of, of speakers. And it was an amazing conference. The One of the earliest speakers, um, it was October uh, 15, I think, Saturday, um, in uh, it was in the the Y, the Hebrew uh, uh, Young Men's Association in mm. in uh, in New York City. Uh, Kurzweil opened, and um, Wolfram was there. Mm. Um, there were economists that were there early in, in the day Saturday and making in, incredible statements about uh, the inevitable ubiquity. Of physical resources hmm. and of energetic resources and and somebody during the Q&A stood up identifying themselves themselves as associated with the Federal Reserve hmm. and said uh, my question is uh, are, are you saying that basically the that's there's really not going to be an economy that people will they won't they won't need to economics and and the person paused for a moment and said yes next question (laughs) (laughs) i I was um i i I mean the notion that um that scarcity could no longer be uh the basis of our value system um set me thinking well what's going to happen to us in every one of our pursuits and every one of our areas of life if we have to redefine what value even means. Mm-hmm. All of our religions, um, all of our uh, political uh, opinions and structures, all of our um, uh, the things that we pursue during each day mm-hmm. are, are all... Um, inseparable from from our values our notions of what's right and wrong um if you and i as as theists we may argue with somebody who is is challenging us to demonstrate for them that um some some notion of uh, how we ought to make our decisions what's right what's uh, not just societally but but personally why would you and I advocate for some sort of altruistic uh, mm-hmm. basis for a law or for economics um, or for even what a, what a church should do? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you look at what some you look at some congregations, um, my denomination is no exception. I doubt that there are any denominations that are really an exception. You can find entire congregations that, if their minister would would get up and and advocate for any kind of radical altruism, they would be considered a heretic. <laughs> you know, listen yeah. during during election seasons, people uh, speaking of, well, let's care about people that aren't fortunate enough to be born capable of um, prospering. Um, people that just they're just genetically they're just not smart enough when, when when they're born they're just you know they're physically have a weak constitution they 
unlucky enough to be born in, in a, a broken, uh, um, unviable family. Um, and there they are without the ability to, to even focus well enough to hold a job. Uh, and what are we going to do about that? Well, you know, there, there's this overwhelming sense, and I'm not going to say uh, including uh, within Christian uh, America, Mm-hmm. But especially, especially within Christian America, hmm. there's a sense that it's inseparable from our idea of uh, red-blooded American religion that those people, you know, uh, need to fend for themselves or be lucky enough for whatever charity they receive. You know, the, the, the notion hmm. of altru- altruisms has been even associated with some sort of Unchristian, foreign, uh, New Age, Eastern. Uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. are we kidding? Are we kidding? Who was this Jesus person? <laughs> I know. Yeah, that that is that is so interesting. And um, I was actually just talking with someone about this yesterday. I think it's it's interesting to see that when when we find other people when we think that other people are adopting our values that's when we tend to jettison them so if we if we think somebody else is picking up the cause of altruism then we're like oh we don't want to be associated with that (laughs) absolutely i i do not think that in in contemporary religion i i do not think that that the mindset differs that much from uh uh, a sports arena mindset um, hmm. in in politics I think this competitive notion um, we we find it delicious to have an out group um, it's wired in mm-hmm. us it's wired in us in in our most fundamental uh, brain functions to identify the difference between who is the we and who is the the they, mm-hmm. and and I think if people would um, would just for sake of honesty set aside the whole um, the whole conversation and all of our traditions in the Western mindset in in the 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 Christian uh, traditional canon, it, and just look at what little we have recording. What Jesus taught and what uh, was reported as far as his activities, I think that there's there's um, uh, dissonance between Jesus' message and our whole yeah uh, self first us first. We we want an enemy. I don't know if our political leaders are capable of um, so getting us to congeal as a nation and <laughs> yeah. even it, it continue. Our, uh, our our big political experiment in one country or the next with without having some common enemy to draw us together um, mm-hmm. and I look I look at transhumanism the notion that we could extend our lives and and enhance our capacities and I think that if we would uh, right now give people the capacity to expand their uh, capabilities, to, to, to take on what we would consider superhero abilities, you know, whether whether uh, it's just to to have our children have 
better musculature so they'd be better athletes in to play high school football or, <laughs> or to have uh, enhanced intelligence so that their test scores will get them into Ivy League schools. Um, all of the, the, the potential uh, superpowers um, tripled or, or uh, quadrupled lifespans. I, I don't think I don't think people are going to uh, on when it comes right down to it, even if it seems scary to people, one little enhancement at a time, as that becomes available, I think most people will opt for in improvements for their children and themselves. Yeah. But to what end do we enhance our ability as competitors? Um, how much can we afford to become better at succeeding when success has to mean hmm. I cause you to fail to succeed? Hmm. You know, this the zero-sum thing, if it doesn't exist in some quarter of our uh, society, then we contrive it. Hmm. We, we don't really know how to motivate ourselves. We don't know what to value if I'm not succeeding by causing you to fail. Um, so I'm, I, yeah. I see this place that transhumanism promises to place us as, uh, as something that drives me back to values that um, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm going to hesitate to call them Christian values because I see such a distinction between Christianity and, and Jesus. So, um, yeah, so we were talking about um, this kind of how a lot of our technologies are basically increasing our ability to be more competitive. But, Indeed. But, I, but this is where it comes in. Like, if we're just more competitive without values or without altruism, then where does that leave us? Yeah, it... The, the trouble, I think, is that, that um, if we become super competitors and our, our joy is, is in um, being able to fulfill the values that we currently have uh, been pursuing, it, I, I think that if we look at people today that... that um, that sort of catch actually can reach the carrot that we're all chasing. Huh. Um, we have these notions as kids that we're going to become a rock star. We're going to get a Super Bowl ring, or our album is going to go platinum, or we're going to become billionaires. Whatever it is, um, I think that we see it many people when they finally do get the carrot. Um, whether it's whether it's a, it's actually um, most people are not I, I think is debatable, but there's a long list of folk that have achieved what we consider um, the success that we would want and that we perhaps want for our children. That then um, that then next thing we hear is that they're having a problem going in and out of rehab for cocaine or alcohol or whatever mm -hmm. and then how many of our superstars end up either in serious trouble or taking their own lives um, what else is there to pursue yeah. you know we're it's the treadmill that we're that we're um, uh, 
taught to enjoy. And if we actually run right off the end of the treadmill and achieve <laughs> the thing, we've got nowhere to go. It, yeah. We realize we realize that that it was vacuous. And if we come to a point, really, where our um, our technology allows us to make our resources ubiquitous, mm -hmm. if if we really can. Um, uh, such as we see in the in in the Star Trek Next Generation, you know, we speak yeah. to the to the replicator Earl Grey, hot, um, <laughs> and indications are we are heading to to those kinds of abilities. I mean, I wouldn't have imagined what we can do now with with a three D printer that's less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, to to just say print and go to bed and get up and we have whatever part we wanted r right there. Yeah. We can down download the parts. And, and I think it's, it's just a matter of degree and we'll take very few years until the things that we're printing or ha whatever technology, you know, nano replicating, uh, will, will not just be from rolls of plastic, uh, uh sp spools of plastic, material that goes into the 3d printer but our clothes and our um uh our tools and our food and everything else and i think it's just a matter of time until we find a way to do that with ambient materials so that we're not relying on uh corporations or uh even networks uh, of people in, in local uh, cooperation, I think just yeah. ambient materials being able to be configured however we could possibly want something with interfaces that allow imaginations to turn into physical objects. I mean, when, when we're at that point, um, there's, there's no reason uh, economically to go to work. Um, I think that before we even come to that point with all these material uh, resources, we're likely to see um, robotic uh, functions replacing many things that we consider jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, t our great-great-grandparents, what, what would they have thought of, of our washer and dryer, you know, in, in our, right. in our la laundry rooms? I mean, that's a robot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that seems so normal to us that Children today can't even imagine. It's absurd to them to think of, of having a whole day of the week that's all about washing your sheets and, <laughs> and your clothes. Yeah. I mean, that, that has transformed life. Yeah. And it's been socially disruptive. I mean, there's, there's communities in, in, in this world that if, if people were not going to, to the same spot in the river to wash all of their clothes, they would be losing a major source of uh, social support, um, and it has happened. Yeah, um, we uh, we have people that are are elderly today that could tell us what it was like um, to live through epidemics such as uh, uh, w the, the the devastation that polio uh, brought mm -hmm. to us. Um, uh, I I know people in in my own area here who still um you can see in their in the way that they walk that they were uh, experienced polio as children yeah um that our children today can't even fathom yeah 
that that kind of thing. So I think that I think though that this time this time is more thorough. It's not it's 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 potential that we could by making it so that we don't have to strive for things and making it so that whatever we could imagine we can have um, physically um, as far as our survival and our amusement and our thriving arts um, there's no scarcity yeah and what what do we base things on uh, or what do we base our value for things on besides uh, besides scarcity yeah well yeah that's where I, I like that you've connected like being a rock star with you know <laughs> with this because it, it's the same problem right and and um so a lot of times people will think about this, about the fact of, you know, if we had everything we wanted, if we had all this technological, you know, stuff, um, you know, it would it would put us in a situation where we wouldn't know how to have value or find value. And it's it's as as potent as what, what you're saying about the the uh, clothes washer, you know, people that used to be a core aspect of community. And now it's not. And so. Exactly. So that community, in a respect, in some respects, went away, um, or became more diffuse. And um, so, so what do we do with that? Is, is the answer, you know, okay, well, we've got to rewind things, or we've got to stop things, or is there a different answer to that problem? Well, I have a hope. Um, oh, I, I think, and 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 I acknowledge that this is wild, mm-hmm. but I am. Um, I think we have we have an opportunity that is a long shot, but I don't think we've had anything to compare to it before. Um, and I don't know that I'm the first person to to think of this, but it, it's the center of my pursuit in my in my own um, study program right now. And my dissertation will will um, focus on this idea I think that if we would take what most people would look at as exemplary uh, models of humanity the, the the people that have um, that probably most people today would look at and say well if we could have that person live for a thousand years I think we'd all be better off mm-hmm. um, as by contrast, there's people that we we would look at and say, if we extended that particular life, that probably wouldn't be a good thing. <laughs> but you take the the Mother Teresa persona, um, Jesus persona, um, the persona of uh, the Buddha, mm-hmm. um, people that that are just our rock star human beings, our, our champion human beings. And there is some difference, and that difference between that kind of person and people that we agree are despicable, people that are um, that have done tremendously hurtful things on a large scale. If we, we take those two kinds of, uh, of person and place them uh, at opposite ends of a continuum, there also exist neurocorrelates of each of those personas, hmm. of those categories. Whatever that difference is, um, it, it points to the fact that each one of us falls somewhere on that continuum. 
And it would be an overwhelming task to identify every specific thing that makes that difference and to find some definition that everyone could agree on given our, our um, wildly varying value systems. However, if we could come to some bottom line differences between what makes somebody um, arguably uh, safe enough pro-social to, to extend their life and to, to really find no disagreement that that would actually be part of the solution and not part of the problem of squandering and hoarding resources and finding some satisfaction in depriving or harming other people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ultimately, once you get enough resources, if you win our game, um, our monopoly board game that <laughs> our lives are all geared for and that our schools are geared for and that unfortunately I think even our churches are, are, are sometimes um, falling in the trap of, of, of pursuing um, as we compete like it's a, an athletic event for the most converts or the most yeah. growth or, or whatever, you know, communities that cannot stop trying to attract businesses and populations so that they have larger tax bases and then they they way overtax their infrastructure and their natural resources and and their space mm-hmm. just growth 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 like a big a big universal cancer um, if we could identify uh, some fundamental neural correlates for for instance um, and, and and I'm not suggesting this is the full full program, but we look at um, the way that human beings, uh, as well as other mammals, are impacted by um, by oxytocin. Um, it makes some of our best qualities uh, come forth as we um, feel nurturing and. Bonded, bonded with our group, and um, we're protective and the like. But it it is accompanied by uh, uh, an opposite kind of uh, impact on how we treat and regard uh, what those individuals in our out group. Hmm. Um, oxytocin causes us to be very nurturing and very uh, kumbaya with one another. But it also exacerbates our defensiveness, our um, paranoia for foreigners, our bigotries, um, our competitiveness. To um, that, that, that's kind of how it is that we require a common enemy uh, to keep our nations uh, uh, continuing to mm-hmm. imagine themselves with some sort of patriotism or nationalism. But. If we were able to to use um, yet to be developed uh, technologies, whether they are whether they're the result of DNA programming or there's some sort of uh, nanobotic solution, um, if we were capable of being more selective by identifying the um, the receptor sites for oxytocin that uh, that cause the the prosocial behaviors to be enhanced, um, but to block those receptor sites for oxytocin that cause us to um, to become more uh, competitive with our outgroup, or 
to combine that with um, the, the, the really hacking the neurocorrelates of uh, spiritual experiences that cause us to feel one with everyone, you know, mm-hmm. so, that, so that there is no outgroup. If we look at, if we look at the, um, the way that Jesus spoke, um, some of his discussion about oneness in John 17, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of um, lack of an outgroup is a very powerful thing. Um, I found in law enforcement, um, working in um, very, very severely um, uh, crime-ridden areas, very, very, um, uh, the the kind of law enforcement that that makes really exciting movies. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I, I've I've worked in those areas, and I've worked in um, detention uh, facilities with in maximum security hmm. and and I have found that if you do not regard the people that you're working with as an outgroup if you actually see them as somebody you love as much as your own family um, every single time that was my feeling I could work collaboratively with with the people that um, yeah. that I think you usually hated law enforcement yeah, and, and 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 to experience a relationship, I'm still you know doing my job and holding people accountable, but there was no hate, there was no conflict, there was just uh, collaboration and and regard both directions, hmm. and it's it's extremely extremely powerful, but it it. Um, it's not really compatible with the way that we're, we've organized society right now. Yeah. But, but our society right now, the way it's organized is also entirely incompatible with ubiquity of resources. There'd be no flow. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Uh, I, I like, I like that you've, what you, you've kind of connected here is that, um, spirituality in a lot of ways when we look at prayer and meditation we're now being able to look on at brain scans and so forth and see that you know these things have definite effects on our on our brains and you could you could look at them as a sort of a, you know brain technology um that absolutely w- absolutely and i i think that the the things that we have done that are spiritual exercises whether it's uh, meditation uh, it's a holotropic breathing, um, so, some, uh, some of the ways that some people experience hypnosis, um, some of the, the substances people have used, uh, uh, ayahuasca, uh, and the like, some of these giving us this, uh, this spiritual oneness where, where the categories, uh, uh, be, seem to be absurd, seem to be contrived, and so that everything appears to be one, that sort of thing. Um, the the way I think that um, that mystics in in every religious ex, in every religious expression have um, generally come down to this oneness. If there are neurocorrelates for that, then they could be hacked. Mm-hmm. At least in at least in theory. Now, what would happen if we actually do experience a breakthrough? Aubrey de Grey comes through for us, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Calico, uh, Google's Calico yeah. comes through comes through for us. What would happen if simultaneously we had uh, successfully pursued enough neural technologies that that we were capable of of uh, predicating life extension of requiring that we we link life extension to some sort of minimal uh, safe level of prosociality enhancement. Hmm. Think about the inherent motivation. If people have an objection, oh, you're going to make me into a zombie. No. Picture a person that is today struggling with uh, uh, super morbid obesity. They, they, they've gotten up to you know 800 pounds and they, they feel that there's, they just can't control themselves. They, they want to not be doing that, but there's like part of their brain function uh, go, there's a direct connection between limbic function and, uh, and motor function. There's no executive control. It gets bypassed habitually. There's this deep groove mm-hmm. that uh, they can't escape. If I could offer them a technology that would rewire that, that would give them back executive control of their appetite. Um, I don't think they would consider that I was making them zombies or right. slaves. I think they would consider that I gave them freedom. Yeah. If a person is a is a gambler and they consistently, you know, blow their paycheck. Or they're a person that has, you know, 900 cats and living in a small house. Mm-hmm. I think if we could, if we could fix that, you know, if they had, uh, also if they had uh, this uh, uh, alien limb syndrome where they have an arm that refuses to uh, cooperate and acts like its own personality, you know, and continues to yeah. uh, refuse to to cooperate. I think that if we could rewire that along with the rest of their functions so that they had uh, executive control of that arm again, they would consider that we had not made them zombies, where they, we had not made them uh, uh, with some sort of Orwellian control. I, I'm, I'm, at, I'm suggesting that our obsession to continue to hoard and to compete with one another to get out of our entertainment has to be watching somebody defeat somebody on a football field. We can't just find any entertainment in a movie unless there's a plot where somebody has to overcome a conflict. There's no, it's not entertaining otherwise. We don't get anything out of it. Our lives, our careers have to be a big competition such that we've come to the point that we're, that businesses, that corporations are bringing in consultants that are diagnosed uh, psychopaths, you know, sociopaths, antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. As consultants to help them root out the prosociality because <laughs> of the weakness it represents in their competitive advantage in the marketplace. I mean, that cannot be life extended and and enhanced without consequences. We don't have the resources in the planet, and we we're, we're too close together for that nonsense at this point. Yeah. So what would happen if we could? simply say, we can free you from that so that when you do have not a limited number of years, but ubiquity of time resource, 
You don't have anything to compete for to have whatever you want to eat, live in, drive, go, you know, space travel. Whatever. You can have it all. But right now, unless you're somehow modified in your value system, you don't have a source of joy. Mm-hmm. You, you just, you're going to be like the person whose album goes platinum and then you finally can't even get enough joy out of cocaine or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you just, you're overclocked. Spinning out of control until you want nothing more than to die, which doesn't really fit the transhumanist agenda. Right. So what what would happen if we could say, no, nobody needs to have their life extended. No one's no one's going to force you to do that. You can do that if you want to. You know, you don't have to uh, have people enhance their kids that uh, to make them live forever when they haven't even started dying yet. Uh, Hmm. You know, when they get in their third, you know, when they get in their middle twenties or their thirties, middle thirties, that that can be discussed. What, what would happen if it if it meant you get this shot or you have this treatment protocol? Inseparably, that means that you're also going to be be um, enhanced in a way that makes it so that you now have a capacity for joy. You now have a capacity for satisfaction. And that happens to be pro-sociality. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that's really interesting. Those two things, I think, I think you're right that those two things definitely um, are going to go together, or they're going to go apart and and be be incredibly destructive. Um, I, let's jump back for a minute and talk about um, how your religious um, background uh, kind of connects you with transhumanism or brought you into transhumanism. What what is the linkage there between Adventism uh, and transhumanism as you see it? Well, I think that um, ha- I'm I'm not somebody who inherited uh, religion. Mm. Uh, it, it, this was something that I went and found as a as a child. Um, it's not. It's not a family thing. Hmm. I have, I have um, great uh, admiration for the statement that that Ray Kurzweil made, uh, that little video clip that was incorporated into uh, the Transcendental Man, uh, where he man. Yeah. Transcendent Man, where he um, he talks about how everybody refers to to uh, death as an inevitability. And he said, I, I don't accept that. You know, the, there's a notion that's built into Christianity that um, uh, it's okay to die because we're going to live again. Um, there's, a, there's a notion that's built into um, to some Eastern religions that that's not the point, that uh, if we can just realize that self isn't the isn't the the big deal and just let it go and be satisfied that we've had our our time um, and stop striving against striving against that I I have never been okay with embracing death um, and and destruction as being somehow beautiful and natural mm-hmm. um, that that bothers me. Adventism, uh, Christianity. Um, I mean, Christianity is um, much of Christianity, not just Seventh Day Adventism, but much of Christianity 
is Adventist, is um, accepting that there's something beyond this life and that Jesus said he was coming again. And mm -hmm. people differ on what they believe that means, but um, there's always been an appeal to me that this isn't all there is. I'm, I don't accept um, that it's the best way to live, to just um, envision humanity, human beings as self-replicating poop factories. <laughs> I just don't believe that we're here to just take up resources, um, make another one or two like us, and then lose our capacities and die. That's, that's um, there's a lot of rationalization involved in saying that that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not. I've been with people when they die many times, and, and it's, I agree with Kurzweil. It's unacceptable. We do everything we can to extend life and make life. And Jesus said in, um, in John 10, um, come that you might have life, you know, yeah. have it more abundantly. What, I mean, isn't that uh, having life and having it more abundantly? How, how can anyone read that statement and, and, and not applaud efforts to extend life? And Seventh-day Adventists have, have um, since very early in their organization, have tried to channel as many resources as possible into making some of the, the world's finest uh, hospitals and uh, medical educational facilities um, to relieve suffering, mm -hmm. to, to make it so people don't get dead, you know, as long yeah. as we possibly can. Adventists have, have pioneered uh, uh, pediatric xenotransplantation. Um, we had uh, one of the first proton accelerator uh, oncology programs at, at Loma Linda. Um, it's, hmm. it's, there's always been this, there's always been this, um, this philosophy built into Seventh-day Adventism that I detected as a child that we're going to do everything we can to relieve suffering and extend life. And um, when, when I came across transhumanism, um, well, Definitely, there is a different worldview in in most of the transhumanist community than there is in in, in yeah. most of the Seventh Day Adventist community. Um, I'm not threatened by that any more than I'm threatened by uh, other people's religions or other people's philosophies. This we they thing um, is inherent in every religion at at a certain uh, level, but there are no religions. I I think that do not have a, a place at the top where people recognize uh, our, our oneness. Hmm. And um, transhumanism uh, is no more uh, a competitor or an enemy than, than another branch of Protestantism or Catholicism or Buddhism or Hinduism. Now, I... I can guarantee you I don't speak officially for Seventh-day Adventism <laughs> because I, I know that the bulk of Seventh-day Adventists are probably um, very uncomfortable, like most of our religious people in, in the Western world, with, um, with the idea of uh, tampering with um, what they see as God's prerogative, um, of messing around with what they see as um, 
something that God uh, maybe intentionally shortened our lives so that we didn't uh, get off the hook like the antediluvians. Um, hmm. I, I appreciated David Brin's presentation at that Singularity Summit 2011. Um, David Brin um, did not identify himself as a theist. He, um, he identified himself as somebody speaking to people that were going to be having to speak to theists <laughs> and say, now, now, and I, w- I was really impressed. Um, David Brin is the one who wrote the, um, the novel that, that uh, Kevin Costner movie, uh, The Postman, was, uh, okay. was made from. Yeah, uh, he's David Brin's a, a a brilliant thinker and and novelist, futurist, um, and, and and he and I do not uh, have the same religious ideas, but he got up there and he said to to everybody in in the audience, I think assuming that uh, all of us were were probably people that were going to have to contend with religious people in the way of our transhumanist agenda, and. He said, you know, uh, if you are going to be in conversation with folk in religious America, he said, there's one thing you need to realize. Uh, They don't actually know their Bible the way that you would think they do. Mm -hmm. Um, You would be at great advantage if you would know their Bible more than they do. (laughs) (laughs) And on the screen, on the huge screen behind him, uh, scripture from the Old Testament uh, written out in full copied right from an open Bible and he gave a Bible study on um, on uh, the flood and the, hmm. the Tower of Babel and everything and um, and he said you know um, if you've got kids that and I, I apologize to him for for uh, embellishing and probably twisting most of what he said, but <laughs> what I drew from it was um, if you have raised kids, you can imagine your reaction when kids uh, get a hold of something when they're too young for it. You know, um, mm-hmm. they get the car keys and uh, start heading to the driveway, but they're four, you're going you're gonna to curtail that. <laughs> yeah. You're going to say, how about a little time out on that and give me those keys? And you're going to set back their their ambition. Yeah. Um, if if you've got a you know couple of uh, nine year olds that are going to uh, uh, experiment with their sexuality, I think most parents are going to uh, to try to postpone that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that would be wisdom. Um, and he said, you know, let's just say that the whole notion that before the flood. Mankind had uh, the ability to live, you know, 900 or more years and had the same language. And they were accomplishing with that uh, not great pro-social stuff. They were accomplishing great harm and becoming very good at being very bad. And so um, they obviously weren't ready for some of the things that there are to discover and some of the capabilities uh, built in just logically uh, as a natural extension of our curiosity and our technology and our exploration. And uh, so let's just say that God 
looked at that like a parent and said, um, you're, you, you'll just hurt with that. Mm-hmm. And you'll hurt others with that. And, and then he um, made reference to the, the um, remarkable progress um, that I think it's a surprise whenever people see books like, was it Pinker who wrote The Better, Angel of, yeah. Better Angels of Our Nature? Mm-hmm. Uh, he made reference to those kinds of statistics, to those trends uh, in the world and, and said, look, look where we're actually heading right now. Um, is it possible that humanity at this point, that God's creation has at this point, perhaps become more concerned about others, more concerned about people who can't take care of themselves, more concerned for some sort of um, fair play, justice, um, kindness, um, protecting the, the weak from, from people that are strong and, and uncaring. And he said, if that's true, could it be that now God could say, at this point, I, I can trust you with those technologies? Mm-hmm. And that is hard to argue with. Yeah, I, that's that's brilliant. I, I I think that's so. Like you you um, talked about the uh, you know the ch- you don't want your children to you know run to the car and try to drive the car too early. And that's exactly how the biblical story um, describes it. That it's this process of God as parent that we as humanity are trying to grow up. And, um, and then in the New Testament, um, Paul talks about this idea at length, this idea that, you know, we were under the, the, um, you know, the schoolmaster. Yeah. Under the schoolmaster until mm-hmm. we got to Christ. We weren't yet ready to, um, to kind of grow up, to, uh, t- <laughs> to, uh, join, uh, the family business to kind of enter into our inheritance. Yes. Um, but now, uh, beginning with Christ. We are, and yes. that's that's Paul's perspective, um, and that that is interesting. That um, that David Brin, is, I, I'm assuming, coming from a a non uh, Christian background, would pick up on that so thoroughly. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that we need to be willing, um, as as mature thinkers. Um, as, as theists, we need to, as mature thinkers, need to be willing to set aside our um, our relentless competitive nature with other people's viewpoints, and be willing to um, to put ourselves in in another person's perspective, um, and sort of play our own devil's advocate. And it was perfect for me as a as a as a theist, and and I, I don't I, I don't know why um, I consider myself to be um, I consider myself not to be uh, a theist um, as some sort of fire insurance or um, mm-hmm. as some sort of uh, I don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, I it it actually seems to be. Um, to spring from a very rational place inside of me, um, I, I notice 
a certain um, desperate religious fervor about people who uh, try to arrogate uh, their superiority as as uh, atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't actually see a, a calculating rational uh, motive there. Mm-hmm. I see a willingness to um, to insult rather than address uh, blind spots, um, and, and I, I don't you know I don't feel competitive about that because I see the same uh, I see the same sort of primitive competitive uh, schoolyard banter thing going on among most Christians mm-hmm. as as well. Most theists um, prefer to name call. And uh, can't just look at the issue. Um, I I don't accept people playing uh, sort of inconclusive trump cards when you ask questions about why um, uh, wh- you know the the engine of of uh, spontaneous natural evolution, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, why why in the world? How in the world would things? as a result of a giant explosion, uh, left alone long enough, tend toward such order and uh, um, exquisite, uh, elaborate uh, organization um, in what, to me at least, seems to, to, uh, to fly in the face of... Uh, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, I can't <laughs> say. I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, I, I'm, I'm not trying to get up on a pedestal and say how everything, how everything has been historically. Uh, I, I'm not a paleontologist and I'm not a cosmologist, but I don't find a lot of intellectual honesty as people uh, fight for their particular myth. Hmm. Um, it seems to me. That I'm seeing and and feeling the same kinds of dynamics, just like going to a football game and watching people that put paint on themselves the color of the jerseys of their whatever uh, athletes they're rooting rooting for, <laughs> and spout a bunch of nonsense and then beat each other up in the parking lot over a over a game. You know, I I see that same spirit of irrationality, and some of the most highly placed spokespersons for theism and for atheism um, appear to me to be involved in schoolyard banter instead of saying, oh, wait a minute, it, it is not a foregone conclusion that these things uh, happened one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, you know, highly placed enough, you know, with enough letters after their name or the right kind of lab coat or pulpit, um, kind of just substitute arrogance and uh, blustering and and try to get more and more uh, uh, esoteric uh, support for so that people finally can't follow them anymore instead of actually <laughs> simply saying we don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> we we really don't know but what does it seem like you know mm-hmm. I don't I don't see that people are willing to recognize, that if it's true that there's a God who is so uh, intelligent 
and so powerful that all that we observe in the natural world could have actually been designed by such a mind that that mind would be uh, of a nature that I could not possibly characterize it without uh, being sort of a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so when somebody else has a certain way of seeing God that's different than mine or my tradition, to which I feel very loyal, I feel very loyal in my affiliation and to the, the intellectual scaffolding of my tradition, but I don't feel loyal enough that I'm willing to, uh, when everyone sounds a battle cry, to say, oh, that's right, we've got to say some things against this person's myth, against <laughs> that person's myth. And I don't mean myth to say something's not true. Yeah. Um, my, my wife and I once were, uh, were washing dishes with a couple of members of our congregation uh, when we were pastoring in Arizona, we had had the church uh, come over to our home for a potluck after service, and several of the little children, little almost kindergarten-aged little preschoolers, were playing out in the dirt under the kitchen window and didn't know that we were we were delightfully overhearing them, and they were arguing about uh, their perspectives of procreation, <laughs> and. They had heard various things from older kids, probably, and some of them had been given talks from their parents about how it all happens. And one of them was saying with certitude, it comes that babies come from the navel. They come out your belly button. And another one says, well, my mom says that it's because of kissing when they kiss, that makes a baby, and they had, you know, distorted even what they'd heard in their in their limited uh, sexology. And we we were listening to each of their each of their descriptions and and smiling, and they were arguing though in their uh, from each from their limited perspective, they had the sense that they should be competing those notions in some sort of mm-hmm. contest, and. I can't believe that if there is uh, an intelligent entity that actually was capable of, of coding in DNA and of, of uh, designing nuclear reactors uh, as large as stars, I can't, I can't believe that our theologies uh, and our cosmologies are not a source of some sort of fond amusement <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's it, it's got to be true it's it's got to be the case that if we talk about a um a, a, a super intelligent being a being far beyond our comprehension that then when we talk about that being we are yes. we are engaging in caricature um, Does it, i i think that jesus ministry was characterized by uh, a consistent attempt to build into his students a sense of humility. Mm. And we might emphasize that uh, in, in an isolated way in, in, in Christianity by saying, yes, well, we should be willing to do acts of service and that, and that sort of thing, you know, do humble tasks, uh, Mother Teresa kinds of uh, agendas. But I think that we're reluctant to... Um, 
extend that to intellectual and theological humility. To, to be able to say that uh, even if somebody seems to us like they, they're either simple-minded or misguided or whatever, to be able to listen to their perspective and say, you know, you know what about that could capture a part of uh, a good description of part of nature or part of God? Um, when we're not intellectually humble— um, we're not curious. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that there's a lot to be, to be curious about. Um, sin, I think, uh, is inseparable from, from not being humble, from, um, not having a perspective, a realistic perspective on, uh, ourselves our, our whole model, our whole viewpoint. Um, but we can coexist, not just for 70 years, but uh, for 700 or 7,000 years, if we have that kind of an approach that's uh, kind of excited to hear what other people mm. have come to, uh, to, to imagine, rather than uh, either threatened by or militantly competitive about I don't I don't actually believe that competition as a, as a mindset or as a cultural construct I don't actually believe that that it's useful anymore when when we get to where it appears we're rapidly hitting and I don't believe that we can afford it uh, if we want, you know, I just, you know, economically, look at what it's costing us. We always, we're, we kind of have this notion that it's, you know, with with Darwin as our patron saint, that um, we have competition to thank for how we've gotten to be as we are instead of uh, just a bunch of unconnected molecules. Um, I, I think that's an absurdity. Competition doesn't have any inherent uh, design characteristics. Hmm. Um, even if it is a fact that people are limbically functioning that way and that the animal kingdom is uh, sometimes functioning that way, I think that the notion of celebrating it like we do, if you watch a wildlife film, um, there's a lot that animals do besides dine on each other and, tr right. and try, to, try to escape, but you wouldn't know that from from most nature films. Yeah. Uh, but it isn't interesting. You can't sell commercial time, I think. If you yeah. just show animals just peacefully uh, nurturing their young, there's no plot. Yeah. Try to write a novel and see if it gets to um, some sort of uh, bestseller list. If it has no, uh, no plot, you know, no yeah. conflict. We have to have conflict. Yeah, Mar marriages are seen. You have to have conflict. We even imagine that we have to have conflict with ourselves. Hmm. But I don't believe that continuing to reify that construct uh, is going to be sustainable with ubiquity of resources and with lives that just keep going and going. Yeah, uh, there's no, there's no conflict. You know, there's no none of this. Um, uh, rise in the plot to some sort of 
crescendo and then the tapering down to to what you're not going to die you know? <laughs> do we imagine as christians do we imagine conflict in heaven right I, yeah i think what you're saying there is is really interesting because to back back to what your your point about you know jesus saying i've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly and I've heard people talk about this in in a sense, like you're taking that very literally and taking it, you know, taking it to its kind of ultimate extent that the the key to life, the key to um, being able to survive yourself for, you know, 700 or 7,000 years is ultimately going to be through this kind of humility and um, and seeking the good of others, altruism, and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, it, it makes sense, you know, that, that Jesus is essentially saying, this is it, right? This is the key to that kind of life, because without this, it's not, none of it's going to work. Indeed. Indeed. I, I, um, I, I think that, that we are going to be needing to... Um, to look at uh, a, a number of ideal um, models of w- what is real humanity, what is sustainable humanity, what can we afford, and what would benefit us if everybody else was like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's maybe more more. It's it's easier if I say, well, what should I be in order to extend my life? Well, I'd like to be able to have joy and not always have an itch I can't scratch, like having. Uh, phantom limb pain forever yeah you know and and i think that kind of the angst that would come about from having nothing no no way to deprive anybody i mean we sit down now and we play a game like monopoly how do you win monopoly (laughs) destroy all the others (laughs) like that's right it's not a matter of getting a few houses and even a hotel and then some you know park place and and that sort of thing it the only way you win is to make it so that nobody else can play. Mm-hmm. And that's a sickness. That, to me, I, I think when people have that, when they hoard, and, and, and look, at people's, um, look at people's agendas when they, uh, they argue with one another about uh, uh, whether, whether party politics kinds of things, you've got some people who it bothers them the notion that somebody is is going to get something they didn't earn or is going to get more than they're going to get or or on the other side they're not going to get given something you know um there's no sense of how can we structure uh our shared you know the way that we govern our shared resources and um our interactions with one another and our management of the real estate and and, and everything um how do we defend ourselves in a way that's uh, going to help the most people. It's not rational like that, you know. It's not yeah. like uh, how do, how do we minimize suffering in the net and maximize uh, pleasant sensations? Yeah, that that's completely missing. Um, what we end up with is people who will vote their own detriment, even be, being so committed to uh, the thought that someday their ship is going to come in and they want. The, the structure to be in place so that then when it does, they're going to still be free to play the Monopoly game out to the end game. 
Um, when people end up with so much in terms of monetary resources that they can't possibly, if they worked full time throughout the rest of their natural life, they couldn't spend it all if they shopped like 12 hours a day. Um, they get so much that they can buy laws and um, that they couldn't really realistically be held accountable for for uh, terrible crimes and the, and the like. The pleasure becomes in seeing how much you can deny other people their ability to uh, hmm. to have anything and have nice lives. I mean, that's sick. Hmm. I'm sorry, but that's um, it's a sickness that the species can't handle if you give too much power to people so they could bring that about. I mean, ultimately, what does that come to if somebody was a thousand times more powerful and, and they were already winning the game today and here they've got more resources so they can afford not only to hoard the the uh, human enhancement, but uh, to to actively prevent others from having it. So that, I mean, yeah, what do they want? As it is, we've got people who, um, I think, are getting something out of there, or they feel like they're going to get some fulfillment if people who have been edged out of their own country can be left to float around without resources in a in a, in a makeshift boat instead of letting them land someplace and and be on dry land. I mean, we've seen this mm-hmm. this year. This year, people have even tied it to the Christian agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that I come back to um, in having to take off, to, to take a bite of something and see if I can chew it and make a little contribution with um, with my life, whether my life lasts for a few more decades or whether it lasts for many centuries. Um, for now, uh, I'm I'm intending to pursue the notion, and if if it can be imagined as at all feasible, if there's any plausibility whatsoever, in the slightest little chance that we could combine the uh, ability, the, the whether you'd be provided life extension technology with some sort of um, plausible um, enhancement toward prosociality, not to limit freedom, but to actually hand freedom to whoever uh, is caught up in the false notion that uh, Fulfillment and joy and uh, purpose in life is about uh, competing and obtaining and uh, taking pleasure in other people's demise, shot and fruit kind of pleasure, yeah. um, which we're all. I mean, I'll I'll admit when I see on on YouTube a picture of a of an attacker who gets into the elevator with a small girl and he doesn't realize that she's a martial arts student, and <laughs> he gets taken to school in the elevator and she thrashes him. I cannot honestly say that that does not entertain me and bring me great delight to see him uh, damaged, but that's that's really shot in fruit, you know. Mm-hmm. That's hmm. sick. That's sick. I should not be experiencing any pleasure. And if you could offer me a technology that would make it so that when another human being was having pain, even if they had been somebody who had a, a an antisocial agenda. 
it should be enough for me to just be concerned that that agenda gets frustrated, not that the person then I get to enjoy seeing that person uh, suffer. That's sick. You know, we want to, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not saying that we should take tools away from the justice system that are helping us to hold the chaos in, in, uh, in check at this point. Certainly as a police officer, I was willing to, um, to do whatever I had to. Um, I will say this, though, in 16, almost 16 years as a cop, I did not ever injure a person. I did not have to use any kind of force that damaged somebody. And I was ready to, but I know that if I had, and that was in my memory, that um, that I'd be horrified by that. Mm. Um, so I long for a time that that we don't we not only don't have to use those kinds of uh, interventions, but that that sick part of me can can be fixed. And yeah. and and I think my religion has helped more than anything in my life to foster compassion in me, to make it so that I, I hurt when I see people hurt. Um, uh, as an, as a, yeah. I think, naturally very aggressive man, um, to be able to, to cry with people when they're unhappy and confused and, and the like. Um, I credit that with exposure to with modeling the example of Jesus and the, the champions of faith and not just our faith, but um, other other admirable faiths. But to to fail to use every available technology to bring that about, to say, oh no, you're playing God. Well, if we, if we really were consistent with that, we wouldn't even believe there should be physicians, you know? Right. <laughs> there shouldn't <laughs> be educators. God should relieve our ignorance. We don't need to get in there and play God and teach right. people. So no. I think that we have a duty. Yeah, we... We should, um, we're in a sense, like if we're playing God by being being doctors and so forth, we should play God by uh, pers- pursuing uh, love and compassion <laughs> and actually doing um, That's right. some That's of the, right. the things that our religions tell us uh, to do. Well, Ro- Robert, thank you so much for, um, for this conversation. I-, I would love to explore some of this stuff. Um, more with you in the future. I think there's so many things, so many kind of directions and things to unpack. Um, but I, I love what you've what you've covered here. Um, I'm going to put links to uh, some of the things you've talked about, um, some of the books and so forth in the the show notes. Is there anything else that people should um, should read or should uh, f- follow you on or anything like that um, that we should link to? I, you know, if I could suggest. If I could suggest one thing that people could read that I think would um, would link to the transhumanist agenda mm-hmm. in the most pro-social way, I, I would say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> All right. I, I think that's great. Um, uh, well, I'll put, uh, I'll put links to uh, the four Gospels uh, in there as, as well as some of these other things. And uh, I think... Um, so with you on on so much of that um so yeah thanks again robert and um look forward hopefully to talking sometime in the future it's a pleasure i look forward to it micah